Welcome to episode 262 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our podcast this week, we're going to take another look at the future of food, in particular, everyone's favorite meal, meat. Not everyone's favorite. I'm meal, kidding, of course. Uh, so, uh, for me, you know, I, I love eating a steak or a hamburger. Carnivore, and, carnivore. And conveniently, uh, you know, that's that's part of what we're going to discuss today. Of course, um, you know, at a very high level, uh, there are a number of environmental concerns when we talk about meat consumption. Uh, agriculture as an industry is the source of about 15% of greenhouse gases and their emissions, which is roughly comparable to uh, the amount of greenhouse gas released by the auto industry. Which is pretty shocking. Yeah, that's that's not, you know, when you think about sort of the environmental concerns, you know, there's a lot of attention paid to the efficiency of cars or uh, electric vehicles and and how we can uh, optimize our transportation, right? But there's not as much emphasis on uh, discussion about, you know, what we're eating and the way that contributes to global warming. Very little, very little emphasis other than sort of the most progressive uh, individuals. But, I mean, it's it's true that, I mean, we could probably impact greenhouse gases more by choosing to eat differently than, you know, uh, changing our transportation. And, th- and that doesn't mean that you shouldn't still consider the way you are commuting or, or what have you. But if you want to have an impact, definitely what you eat is going to make a difference. Yeah. So that's the context. And uh, a, another sort of high-level contributor to that is that the population of humans on this planet is, is growing quite rapidly. The UN predicts that a global population, which is 7.6 billion people today, is going to grow by 2.2 billion to 9.8 billion in 2050. So we're closing in on 10 billion people by mid-century here, which means that there's going to be that many more people who are eating potentially meat because as people become more prosperous, they tend to eat more meat and more dairy, which means thousands of metric tons more meat being produced to uh, to even, satisfy that need. Even more than that at 10 billion, right? I mean, sure. Yeah. It, it, so so if, if you begin to see, you know, where that that bottleneck's going to be, where that pinch point, like, you know, where, where this becomes really unsustainable, it's probably already here. And if it's not here yet, it's, it's coming very soon. So if there's only, say, you know, a couple billion people, you can set aside the land, the feedstock, the water, the fuel, the pesticides, everything that's needed to raise cattle for beef, you can set that aside. But uh, as we approach 10 billion people, that's just no longer a sustainable option. All of this is to say that considering other alternatives to animal-generated protein is a smart thing to be doing, and a number of startup companies are, are doing that. Because frankly, the meat substitutes that we have so far, well, they're well-meaning, but they're not really all that 
convincing. Um, uh, yeah, I, I might say that the technology is still is still nascent. Yeah. The uh, or or at least the majority of the substitute meat products on the uh, on the on the shelves or in the frozen food section right now is not super great, which you know is a huge market opportunity for somebody who can figure that out. So a couple of years ago, I actually met the CEO of Impossible Foods at at TED Med uh, when he was speaking there, and they had a a really fantastic pitch just about how they were making their substitute uh, meat product, which is, you know, vegetable-based, much more similar to meat by replicating, basically with, within the product itself, there's, um, and I'm going to get the terminology wrong, but it's the flavors that come from the animal byproducts, more similar to sort of the flavors you might get from the blood or the mm-hmm. fat. and It's a very specific umami flavor right. that and, comes from the meat. And so they, they were getting rave reviews. And, and Dirk, you and I actually had the opportunity this afternoon to go over to a restaurant in, in Burlington, Massachusetts. Clover Food Lab. And try out some impossible meatballs. They didn't have an impossible burger. That was which, a bummer. Which wanted seemed, the burger. Yes, we very much wanted the burger. But lunch today was uh, an impossible meatball sandwich. So, so John, the question is, was it impossibly good? I, I, I didn't think it was impossibly good, but I thought it was pretty darn good. So it might be maybe pretty darn good foods rather than impossible. I don't know, Dirk, did you like your meatball sandwich? I'll say that I liked my meatball sandwich. And, you know, John, unlike you, where I I know you do buy sort of vegetable-based, turkey-based, sort of fake meat in a way as just part of your normal diet, I I really haven't eaten food like that in a long time, probably as far back as the 1990s when it tasted like cardboard and I just took for granted it continues to taste like cardboard. Uh, So I'm coming at it from from, um, maybe a, a harsher perspective because I'm not comparing it to cardboard, I'm comparing it to real meatballs. Not a huge meatball fan, but I do eat meatballs sometimes. And I gotta say it was a good meatball. And I don't mean a good vegetable meatball, I mean a good meatball. It wasn't great, it wasn't the kind of meatball where I'm like, oh my God, I, I can't wait to come back here again. But I was like, yeah, this is good, it tastes like a meatball. It, w- it was slightly off, very slightly, but not in a bad way, not in a way that, that ruined it at all. You could tell something was a little bit different. Um, and it was good, you know, would I, want to take a special trip to have more? Probably not. Uh, if somebody wanted to have lunch there, would I order it? Maybe. Um, I'll see what else is on the menu. But I would not, uh, you know, if I went over to a friend's house and they were proudly bringing out that same meatball sandwich, I'd be like, oh, hey, this is good. You know, you cooked a really nice sandwich here and mean it. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's good. And compared to recent, you know, turkey, vegetable, meat options, John, it sounds like you think it's great in that context. Yeah, and from the perspective of someone who likes meatball subs, I I know that you can drown it in sauce, which is probably part of the reason why they selected that configuration for their sandwiches over at Clover, just because, you know, the the sauce is uh, is pretty strong in flavor uh, and masks some of the differences that you might perceive otherwise. Mine was not drowned in sauce. I don't know if yours was, but mine, there was sauce on it and it did have a strong flavor, but I, I didn't feel like they they just drenched it in sauce to hide the meatball. Did, so, did you think so? I mean, I, I think that was part of the calculation. Okay. I, I, okay. I do. I, I think it... it May it reminded you of eating a meatball sub 
because the sauce flavor is similar, uh, which is not to say that, you know, that I thought the texture was pretty good. And when I looked at it, it even looked like a meatball. It didn't look like, oh, somebody crushed together a bunch of something else and is trying mm-hmm. to fool me into that it's a meatball, right? The color was a little off. Again, just a little – in taste, color, texture, everything was just slightly off, but still okay. So usually on, on, a, on a meatball sub, I just dump a ton of jalapenos on it, which I guarantee you would have made it seem very similar. Yeah. That wasn't something that they offered, but that I just always – dump a bunch of talk about masking flavors yeah so so i i tend to like that sort of thing so that you're a spicy guy brother i am so i think impossible foods is doing a a pretty darn good job of creating this meat substitute now so the next level really is about replicating like a steak right so that that might be the holy grail of um uh, meat substitute, being able to go to a nice steak restaurant and have the right textures and flavors, but, you know, get to that point without, you know, maybe the quite so high a cost to the environment. So, yeah. so there are a number of labs that are working on this and, and there's two approaches. One is to uh, make it from vegetable protein, which of course, very difficult to replicate the the right textures because when you're talking about meat, you're talking about an assemblage of a lot of different elements within the animal and and the, uh, coming together to make make those flavors. Whether you're talking about you know the sinews or the the bone and the cartilage and all of these things, just you know make meat what it is, and it's hard to extrude that right in in, in a lab setting. The other approach is a little creepy from from my perspective but yeah. it is the the cultured meat right so cultured meat is way 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 expensive right because you're basically taking meat cells that can replicate and you're putting it into a substrate that allows this meat to be cultured and grow and so for you know tens maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars you can get to your your fake steak which you know, may not taste very good. But those are the two main approaches. And I think over the course of the next, say, like five years, you're going to see some uh, some major milestones there. In fact, uh, I was looking at, a, I think it was an IEEE article on an extruder, which was uh, uh, more towards the, the, the plant-based, the soy-based, uh, you know, extruding something that would look like a steak and we love extruded meat and that you know i mean aside from the that being you know a slightly grotesque way to describe meat you know they're having a lot is it any more grotesque than slaughtering the poor freaking animals though i mean come on what's grotesque what is grotesque is our definition of grotesque a reasonable one i would say no i would say the slaughtering of these poor innocent animals is the more grotesque thing here yeah extrude away baby so, so the advantage of, you know, whether or not you're using the uh, plant-based meats or if you're using this cultured meat, you're avoiding things like the toxicity of all of these pesticides and runoff. You know, additionally, if you're using antibiotics, say, in, in, in the production, traditional production of meat, 
you know, you're basically increasing the possibility of, of creating superbugs, which is another massive hazard for humanity over time. You can't get salmonella from extruded meat, John. I guarantee you that. Yeah, I, I, w- I wouldn't think so. So I think our verdict on the future dinner table, right, is that we are right now somewhat sold on the vegetable-based impossible foods and, uh, you know, looking forward to the next stage when we can uh, sit down and have a steak dinner and be at least partially fooled into thinking that that we're eating a steak. But it's a funny thing because, I, you know, never in a million years would, would think that diet would have to change in order to uh, affect, you know, these environmental concerns that we discussed earlier in the program. But these types of changes, I think, are, are going to be important, but also slightly unsettling. I can imagine the reaction of people who may not even, you know, even like the idea of uh, eating meat that's not meat. So yeah. I think there's a lot to overcome there. Well, it's, it's, that will be a transitional period. We'll go from being uncomfortable with it to being, you know, uh, squeamish and odd as it's transitioning to the point where it's just normal and it's all anyone knows, you know? I mean, and that's the future. I mean, I, I don't know. I put 50 years on the first world no longer eating real meat, you know, that the the, the combination of technology and, and focusing on the environment and laws developed to protect the environment, all the other factors. To me, it's 50 years away that we're not eating real meat. And the idea of eating real meat seems as repugnant to us then as smoking on airplanes seems to us now. In our adult lives, of course, smoking on airplanes at one point was a thing. Um, You just took it for granted. Now it's like, holy cow, they did that at one point? Aghast. Um, That's what eating, eating meat will be like. And you know, beyond meat, I mean, I think it's a really exciting, you know, moment for for food technology in general. Uh, you know, another example that I want to talk about is there's a product called Enlighten Ice Cream. I don't know if this is one you're familiar with or not. So, you know, as as I've gotten older and my metabolism has slowed down, my uh, my proportions have become increasingly generous. And, uh, you know, a lot of that for me is I don't eat, you know, giant meals or, or anything like that. But for me, um, going back to my childhood, my, my parents kind of modeled this and, and there was some behavior dysfunction around it. But I, I have a, like a large sweet every night, you know, at night. And that's like big calories on top of just eating like a normal person during the day. And that has manifested most often in a pint of ice cream. Pint of ice cream is over a thousand calories, right? Like putting that on top of your day, that's that's going to hurt. And it's not only going to hurt in terms of calories, but it's hurting in terms of fat, you know, the sugar. I mean, you're just spiking these, these horrendous things in your body. So this, this new product, Enlightened Ice Cream, what they're doing is they're replacing the sugar and fat with protein and fiber. And the calories on the product are 40% what a pint of ice cream would be. And instead of sugar and fat, you're getting protein and fiber. So things that are just bad are replaced by things that are, are actually good. And this is a new find for me, but I think it could be something that ends up saving my life. It could be something that ends up extending my life significantly because it's, it's going to chop six to 800 calories a day out of my diet. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And it's going to convert, you know, fat and these other bad things into better things like fiber. And, and it tastes good, right? So as someone who's had a problem with sweets and ice cream for a long time, 
in the past, the stuff didn't taste that good and it wasn't really better for you, really. Like they really jacked up the sugar to make up for the fact they were cutting the fat, right? The light, it was kind of six of one, half dozen of the other. But now you've got a product and it's a lot like the incredible meat where it's not quite right. The texture is really good, but it's not quite right. The taste, you know, um, you know, Ben and Jerry's or Enlightened, You'd rather have the Ben and Jerry's, but it's just a step or two behind. And if it's a step or two behind and it's so much healthier, I mean, that becomes a really good choice. And so I think across a lot of product categories in food technology, we're seeing a shift from traditional things like, like real beef, like normal ice cream that people have been eating for over 100 years, into things that are viable, truly viable replacements from the standpoint of product quality and health quality synthesizing together. And, and so I, I think that for me, what's happening in food technology right now is among the most exciting things that are happening because I, I think it will impact our, our lives and our health in, in massive ways. It will impact, in the case of meat in particular, the planet's health in, in fantastic ways. And look, I mean, I, as someone who eats meat but does it uneasily because I do have a real ethical problem with slaughtering animals for ourselves to eat meat, um, moving away from that and, and allowing animals to, to however many of them are going to continue to do so freely and not being just bred for the slaughter and for our pleasure and consumption, I think is just a good thing and is, is where human development needs to continue going for us to reach our full potential, for us to be as holistically healthy and good as individuals and as a society as as we can be. I think food technology plays a huge role in pulling all of these things together. So it's it's something I'm very, very excited about and thrilled that companies like Impossible and Enlightened are are out there and doing this. You know, rock on, brother. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds really good. I'll have to uh, take a look at Enlightened Ice Cream and see if uh, see if it's for me as well. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to the digitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D-Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 262 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. 